By way of short introduction, for you today I have two essays by G.K. Chesterton, published over a hundred years ago and very clearly open copyright. I want to let you know that they are both very good for today, because today is the Sunday after Pentecost, and we're in the Pentecost season, and it's a time of joy. And we should also reflect on our sort of state in life and things. And so one essay is on Chesterton reflecting on the concept of vulgarity, and how vulgarity is not using naughty words per se, because often when we use such words, we're just using the wrong words to describe something. They usually are inadequate to describe what we're going for. Rather, vulgarity goes into what a person is. It's usually a, it's usually behavior that shows more about the person, and it's just grossly inappropriate to the situation rather than words. And the other essay I have from him, also short, is on the concept of positive and negative morality. The thou shalt versus thou shalt not debate that we sometimes hear in moral debates. So both of these are good for our time, and I hope you find them useful. Have a blessed Sunday. On Vulgarity by G.K. Chesterton Most of us have wondered if we could find a real definition of vulgarity, for it is generally difficult to destroy or even to defy a thing that we cannot define. I suspect to begin with that we should discover, in the case of this word, a difficulty that exists with regard to a great many modern words. They were invented after the age of doctrine and definition. They are at best artistic and atmospheric. They have come to stand for strong impressions, which are real enough, but to stand for them merely as symbols, something poetical, sometimes arbitrary and accidental. And I rather fancy that in the case of vulgarity and other verbal symbols, we should find that the inquiry ended in an odd way. When we had really managed to put into other words the thing we meant by this particular word, we should probably find that it was a very incorrect word for it. Thus, vulgarity, as a vice which we can not nil feel rather vividly, I should imagine, in the affairs and fashions around us, is not really connected with the ancient vulgus, not even with the profanum vulgus. The mob has its own vices, but it is not necessarily vulgar. The mass of mankind has its own weakness, but we do not necessarily feel those weaknesses as vulgarizing. The particular thing we mean, or at any rate the thing I mean, when I use this word is something much more subtle, and certainly much more poisonous, but I really do not know any other word for it. I could easily give examples of a of it from the press, but this would be a rather cheap and unfair way of filling pages in this book. So, with a full sense of the rashness of what I am doing, I will make an attempt to state the real nature of the thing I call vulgarity, and I wish I knew a worse name for it. What I mean by vulgarity is this. When six men stand up and we suddenly see that one of them is a, is rather short, we are startled to find he is so stunted. We only realize that he is stunted because he is standing up, because he is stretching himself to full height. Similarly, when the mind of man stretches itself in order to show off and is still stunted, that is the revelation that I mean. It is by the showing off that we see how little there is to show. When somebody tries to impress us, either with his wit or assurance, or knowledge of the world, or power or grace, or even poetry and ideality, and in the very act of doing so shows he has less of all those things, that is vulgarity. In other words, a thing is only vulgar when its best is base. That is why things commonly called vulgar do not seem to me vulgar at all. The red-nosed comedian, the man who sits on his hat, the joke about the drunken man, these are not the sort of thing of which I am thinking. Indeed, they are the very reverse, for the man who sits on his hat is not standing up. The drunkard is not stretching himself. He is, as he will explain, enjoying relaxation. 
The red-nosed comedian is not pretending to be at his best. These things may have dangers or weaknesses of their own, but they do not indicate that a man is base, even at his best. The man who sits on his hat on the stage may be perfectly dignified when he sits on his chair at home, or takes off his hat in church. The red-nosed comedian, when he has hung up his red nose along with his hat, may be, in private life, a blend of Baynard and Socrates. We can appeal from Philip drunk to Philip sober, but we can appeal no further if we find that even Philip sober, sober is a boor and a brute. If he is at base at his best and baser in his attempts to impress us with his best, then we have a certain sensation for which I know no other name. It appears when the man does pretend to be Bayard and only manages to be Barnum. It appears when the man does go to church and takes off his hat and seems to care more about the hat than the church. It appears in short when there is something about him that seems to debase and flatten everything he touches, and most of all when he touches worthy and exalted things. Thus there is the man who wishes first to prove that he is a gentleman, and only proves two things. First, that he is vulgar enough to prefer being a gentleman to being a man, and second, that he has a hideously stunted and half-witted notion even of being a gentleman. There is the man who wishes to show that he has lived in the best society, and shows, even in showing it, that he does not know the best society from the worst. There are any number of lesser and even more excusable examples, but this is the touch that makes the difference. There is the man who is always being tactful without tact. There is the man who jokes loudly and laughs heartily, and so proves that he has no sense of humor. There is the man who talks a great deal about understanding women, with every word helps us with a ghastly clarity to understand him. There is the man who tells stories of the wonderful affability and friendliness of very rich men he has known, and thereby reveals his secret faith, that rich men are gods and he, that he is an unfortunate favorite of the gods. And all of these men have the mark that I call for convenience vulgar, the mark that they give us their own moral and spiritual measures by stretching themselves to their full stature. If they had been a little lax and casual and humble, we might never have found them out. But if they had not been so clever, we might never have known that they were fools. If they had not been so gentlemanly, we should not have seen that they were cads. Negative and Positive Morality by G. K. Chesterton A vast amount of nonsense is talked against negative and destructive things. The silliest sort of innovative compl innovator complains of negative morality and compares it unfavorably with positive morality. The silliest sort of contrarian complains of destructive reform and compares it unfavorably with constructive reform. But the innovator and the contrarian entirely neglect to consider the meaning of the words yes and no. To give the answer yes to one question is simply to answer no to another question. To desire the construction of something is to desire the destruction of whatever prevents its construction. This is particularly plain in the fuss about the negative morality of the Ten Commandments. The truth is that the curtness of the Ten Commandments is an evidence not of the gloom and narrowness of a religion, but of its liberality and humanity. It is shorter to state the things forbidden than the things permitted, precisely because most things are permitted and only a few things are forbidden. An optimist who insisted on a purely positive morality would have to begin by telling a man that he might pick dandelions on a common and go on for months before he came to the fact that he might throw pebbles into the sea. In comparison with this positive morality, the Ten Commandments rather shine in that brevity, which is the soul of wit. But of course, the fallacy is even more fundamental than this. Negative morality is positive morality, stated in the plainest and therefore the most positive way. If I am told not to slay Mr. Robinson, if I am stopped in the very act of doing so, it is obvious that Mr. Robinson is not only being spared, but is, in a sense, renewed and even created. And those who like Mr. Robinson, among them my reactionary romanticism, might suggest the inclusion of Mrs. Robinson, will be well aware that they have recovered a living in complex unity. 
And similarly, those who like European civilization and the common code of what used to be called Christendom will realize that salvation is not negative, but highly positive and even highly complex. They will rejoice at its escape long before they have leisure for its examination. But without examination, they will know that there is a great deal to be examined and a great deal that is worth examination. Nothing is negative except nothing. It is not our rescue that was negative, but only the nothingness and annihilation from which we were rescued. On the other side, there is the same fallacy about merely destructive reform. It could be applied just as easily to the merely destructive war. In both cases, destruction may be essential to the avoidance of destruction, and also to the very possibility of construction. Men are not merely destroying a ship in order to have a shipwreck. They may be merely destroying a tree in order to have a ship. To complain that we spent four years in the Great War in mere destruction is to complain that we spent them in escaping from being destroyed. And it is, once again, to forget the fact that the failure of the, the knifeman means the life of a positive and not a negative Mr. Robinson. If we take the imaginary Mr. Robinson as a type of the average modern man in Western Europe and study him from head to foot, we shall find defects as well as merits. And in the whole civilization we have saved, we shall find defects that amount to inflictions. Its feet, if not of clay, are certainly in clay, stuck in the mud of materialist, industrial destitution and despair. To say it is a positive good and glory to have saved Mr. Robinson from strangling is to miss the whole meaning of human life. It is to forget every good as soon as we have saved it. That is, to lose it as soon as we have got it. Progress of that kind is a hope that the enemy of faith, and that of faith is the enemy of charity. When our hopes for the coming time seem disturbed or doubtful, and peace chaotic, let us remember that it is really our disappointment that is an illusion, that is our rescue, that is a reality. Our grounds for gratitude are really far greater than our powers of being grateful. It is the mood of a noble sort of humility, and even a noble sort of fear, that new things are really made. We adorn things most when we love them most, and we love them most when we have nearly lost them.